This is The Definite Article, a show about creativity yesterday, tomorrow, and today. This is The Definite Article. It's a program about creativity yesterday and tomorrow and also today. Uh, my name is Justin Jacoby Smith here in the city of Washington, D.C., and I am joined, as always, by my fellow Texan co-host over in Chicago. Robin, how are you? I'm good, Justin. How you doing up there? I am doing well. I'm doing well. You're, you're sounding even even crisper and warmer than uh, than I can recall you sounding in, in some time. You must have made some technical changes over there. <laughs> crisper and warmer. Wow, it's- that's... Uh... You know, it's au- uh, it's autumn, man. It's autumn. This is now is the time to be crisp and crisp. That must be it. I've got I've got a cardigan on. Um, you know that uh, got me on the top of my game mm. there. I, I I got the new iPhone today Ooh. because I'm worth it. <laughs> that's right. Um, that, that's 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 d- damn Skippy. You damn. It's very damn Skippy. The very finest peanut butter. D- damn damn Skippy. Well, I tell you, I did have one sort of sort of negative occurrence uh, this week. My my bag, my my messenger bag, which is it's been through, man, it's been th- been through hurricanes, it's been through uh, you know circle pits, it's been been up against uh, riot riot police, and um, and now it my messenger bag has finally decided to poop out on me. Um, which is not as uh, no. it's been an incremental process rather than an excremental rather than process. excremental. That's right. And I, I was kind of excited today to find uh, something uh, ca- called the Muset. I don't know how, how you say it. The, the Muset bag. Muset bag. Have you ever seen one of these things? I have never seen one of these it's, things. It, I guess it came out of like World War One. The British combat guys would carry these around. They look a lot like like you know what we know of as a backpack today. Uh, you know they don't look all that different, but the, they're sort of smaller. I'll drop one of these ones in the show notes here that I found on a army surplus that I thought was pretty cool. I think I'm going to get one of those bad boys to replace the messenger bag because I when you're a young uh, you know urbane sort 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 of guy that rides the train a lot, you got to have a have a bag to carry your your 47 library books. And so you know I, I got I got to have a got to have a sturdy bag that I can carry with me every day. You know I've I've ridden 12,000 miles on the train in the last year. I got to have a, a bag that I can throw around and be okay with. And and this Dang. Yeah, and I'm I'm not even kidding. I I did the math today. I've literally ridden uh, twelve thousand miles on the train in the last year. Do they give you like a punch card for that? Do you get like a free? Yeah, if 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 they have one more metro, de- yeah, if they have one more metro delay, I get a free sub, which I'm excited about. Um, gotcha. Yeah, if I have to uh, endure one more offloading of my train because the smoke filled up the entire train station and we all had to evacuate, then I get a free <laughs> sub. Not that I'm upset about it. Um, I I better get a free sub or something. Um, or something. But I am excited about the bag. I I also was somewhat insulted that on the Army Surplus site they have a bag that they refer to as the Advanced Tactical Hipster. Um, <laughs> so this is this is how I found the uh, the Army Surplus site. Was somebody directed me to? Hey, Advanced Tactical Hipsters, like they're marketing directly to you. Right. I I love the description they have here. Here at Army Surplus World, we carry an Advanced Tactical Hipster. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the sentence. No, I'm just, I'm just like I have this great image of like a drill sergeant like carrying you over a field of barbed wire now. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I'm gonna gonna be stra- strapped to his hip uh, at the ready. 
so that when the hipster needs to be deployed in the tactical moment, <laughs> the hipster is prepared. When when, when Uncle Sam needs needs him, needs him, the advanced tactical hipster is there. That's amazing. I I thought so. Yeah. So that's so good. Advanced. So yeah, I I, I only have uh, notes written on one note card today, but all it says is advanced tactical hipster. When I was in the Apple store today buying my fancy dancy new iPhone five, um, the uh, the guy who was selling this thing to me, I, I was reading a copy of the Economist. I was reading about um, what's her face Merkel, you know the new the the, the German Chancellor or whatever. Meet, meet the new Chancellor's name is the old Chancellor. Right. Yes. Yeah. Reading the Economist and and he and he saw my you know my Texas tattoo. And then we were looking at my old phone, and the background of my phone is um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's daily schedule. Right. And uh, and <laughs> he said, "I'd like to shake your hand. <laughs> <laughs> you're a you're, you're a bit of a hipster, aren't you?" <laughs> um, and 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 did, yeah. did you did you vehemently deny it, or did you did you accept the did you accept the the curse? <laughs> said yes, yes, sir. There was actually, there was a thing I was reading uh, yesterday by uh, Nathan Jurgensen. He's this guy like he was talking about how you know everybody these days talking about like the elastic definition of hipster and doesn't really mean anything and yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. And he had this great piece yesterday called called "Hipsters Are Real," um, <laughs> where he was just sort of arguing that it actually is a distinct group of people that does exist. Uh, but I thought the title was was call, it called to mind. Uh, uh, you know the the, the Lewin brothers, uh, Satan is real, where they're standing in hell with with the devil, um, mm-hmm. and I I couldn't help but imagine like switch out Satan and just sticking like sticking like a guy wearing jorts and like a bad beard, and <laughs> you know hipsters are hipsters are real. That's great. Hey, what are we talking about today? We're today, Justin. Uh-huh. Uh, I was hoping we could well... have a little talk about heroes and what they mean and what they do for us and why we seem to like them i i I like i I don't know i like spider-man because he like swings from building to building right that's is but that's that's probably not true that's not the same reason why i like you know like like leibniz you know he he and the guy that invented calculus yeah although i mean if if leibniz could swing from building to building i would probably like him more Right. One of the articles you, you sent me about this was was talking about, you know, fictional versus real heroes. And I really like one of the quotes from it saying that the truest heroes are fictional heroes. Because um, they found that, um, well, I guess I should, I should talk about what I'm looking at, first of all. This is of seven paradoxes of heroism. Her- heroism. Heroism? I don't know. This is a really cool article, and I like all these the paradoxes about heroes that are some of them are pretty surprising the first one being that the truest heroes are fictional heroes um we found that fictional heroes and villains were rated as more definitely good or bad than their real world counterparts fictional heroes are indeed truer heroes which makes a lot of sense to me just in the fact that like fiction tends to paint people as foils of each other as more definitely you know um one thing versus the other uh it's it's just easier to categorize people when they're not real um but uh i i do find it interesting that people tend to look up to these fictional heroes more than they do real life heroes um 
Right. I mean, why? Why do you think that is? I'm. Well, I think there's. I think a huge part of that. Oh, and by, and by, by the way, it seems worth mentioning here um, to to your mom who's listening. I'm sure um, that uh, we can find the links to this article and all the other fun stuff uh, that we're talking about at hustine.net slash tda slash nine. That is where you will find the show notes for this episode. You may notice that we're missing number eight. We're going to refer to that as the as the lost episode, um, <laughs> which right. which which will never air. But uh, but you won't ever hear us mention the lost episode ever again until five minutes from now. But anyway, hustine.net slash tda slash nine is where you'll find the links to this. And yeah, as far as this particular paradox of the notion that we find or rather prefer heroes that are fictional heroes, you know, that the truest heroes are fictional, I think that that's the case because fictional heroes can never fail us. Yeah. You know, they are, they're heroes in fiction because they have done the right thing. If they have failed in the course of trying to, of trying to accomplish their goals, it's inevitably just a step on the path to their success. You know, that's what makes them heroes. So, so a fictional hero is never going to really fail you. That can like be problematic. I don't know. Like there's. I don't, but but there's but there's there's six other paradoxes here. Maybe maybe we should touch on some of the some of the other stuff sure. here. Because um, yeah, one of the other paradoxes here that really that really jumped out at me was the the sixth one that says we love to build up our heroes and we also love to destroy them. Which this is down towards the bottom of the thing. Yeah, and they they say our research shows that people are captivated by dramatic tales of underdogs who heroically prevail against the odds. But the reverse is also true. People appear to crave the undoing of heroes. In fact, we suspect that this type of schadenfreude or schadenfreude is heightened in hero perception. They say that their studies show that the greatest heroes can't get away with anything less than near-perfect moral behavior. And for this reason, heroes are bound to fall from grace. Uh, and they they say that you know what goes up must come down. They call it the law of heroic gravity. That to me, I don't know. It brings to mind like the the kill, the whole kill your idols sort of like uh, sort of punk aesthetic or like Sonic Youth did a whole like like kill your idols kind of thing where you have to the things that you revere in order to surpass them you have to be willing to like tear them apart you know mm. in order to in order to do better than the things that we worship we have to be willing to we have to be willing to see them destroyed sure and I I think that very much plays into this this kind of paradox. I think that's why we love to destroy them because it's essential for us to be able to surpass them. We have to. Sure. Well, the thing that that I first thought about about this was um, like celebrity obsession. Was uh, we we love to see celebrities mess up. Like you know every <clears throat> every tablet, every magazine you buy at a grocery store is is going to tell you all about celebrities messing up in some way or other, and people people love that shit like it's it's and you know at least my thought on that is because it assures them that these heroes of theirs are also human maybe it's like this this life cycle of of heroes that there's there's this inevitable fall that kind of re like lets us know again that they are human therefore we could be just as good as they were which i think is you know a part of the purpose of heroes is to inspire us to be like them, obviously, and and to be greater than we currently are. Right, and I I think that that 
like you're saying, one of the only ways that that whole process can happen is if these heroes that we have come apart. It, it's it's sort of, it's sort of the unspoken part of like the Joseph Campbell thing, right? Yeah. The hero is always going to go on his great journey, and the hero is going to do this and do that. And then it's sort of the the unspoken postscript to the hero's journey is that the hero probably is going to either wind up you know opening up a diner and leading a very quiet life, or he's going to you know fall from grace in some way. Sure. It seems to me it's sort of an essential part of what makes a hero a hero is that is a moment of imperfection that marks them really as as human. Yeah. Have you ever? <laughs> I'm going to bring up a graphic novel again. Have you read Promethea ever? I have not. Okay, it's an Alan Moore graphic novel that is really great. And Promethea is basically the spirit of this long-dead goddess hero who embodies powerful women. And then when, you know, this powerful woman gets old and, and retires or whatever, the mantle shifts to the next Promethea. Um, and, and so, you know, when one, when one falls, the other rises uh is is kind of the the life cycle of it which i think is you know maybe a little bit more accurate than uh <laughs> than maybe they were even trying to be right right i mean i i i can't help thinking when i think ab- about these sorts of things when we choose to adopt these these heroes like there are downsides here right there there are there are things that are that are problematic and i i think of like the first time I'd ever heard of uh, of the poet Arthur Rimbaud, do you, do you know this guy? Yeah, um, the, French dude. Yeah, this fr- French guy wrote real weird stuff. Um, and I, I tell you, before I before I go any further, um, let's get, do, do a little elevator music for me. I'm gonna make some some microphone adjustments over here. And we're back. All right, <laughs> that was pretty good. Hey, well, you know, shape singing. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, this guy Rimbaud, Arthur Rimbaud, um, mm-hmm. French guy, wrote real weird poems, wrote this thing called The Season in Hell. That was pretty weird. Annoyingly talented. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, he was like nine. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's, I hate him. Yeah, that's the... Uh, that's the whole thing is that I first discovered this kid when I was, when I was, you know, I say kid, he was older than me at the time. Um, but I, I first discovered this guy in a book called Days of War, Nights of Love, which I think I've thrown at you before. Yes, um, you have. Yeah. And, I still haven't read it. Well, you got, it's, there's some good <laughs> stuff in there. And there's a little sidebar about this guy, Rimbaud. And I, um, I remember reading, and I've actually found it online because the book is written by crazy people that put their books for free on the internet. Um, right. So I found this little section about Rimbaud. And it goes kind of through his whole life story. It's maybe four paragraphs. Um, and at the very, it ends like this. They say, Rimbaud knew better than to save any of himself for the grave. He spent every resource he had in this world down to the last penny. Burned money, health, friends, family, sanity is so much fuel for the fire. So when death came to take him away, death got nothing. Not even a man with his pride or common sense intact. His life still stands as an example to all of us. And hmm. I remember th- when I when I read that, you know, being a not right thinking teenage person, you know, I immediately opened up my notebook where I scribbled such things and I wrote something like live like Rimbaud, you know, because I thought that was inspiring. Sure. Because sometimes when we don't have the 
context or the perspective that are necessary to really evaluate the reality of our heroes, we can be seduced by the romance, right? And, you know, obviously the guys that wrote Days of War and Eyes of Love, this, this group called Crime Think, they're playing right into that, of course. Uh, that's, sort right. of, that's sort of their whole, uh, you know, playing up the romance of bad ideas is sort of their stock and trade. And so they're very much doing that here. But the problem is that I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the context to know that I was embracing a set of bad ideas, you know. Uh, and I think that's one of the problems of uh, of adopting heroes is that this guy, you know, Rimbaud, he was a complex guy. He was a guy that had a lot of suffering in his life. He had a lot of mm-hmm. he had a lot of problems. This guy didn't live an easy life. Uh, you know, he wound up losing limbs and stuff. Um, like you, you know, he, he didn't even make it to thirty. And the guy, um, yeah, and the died guy, of what tuberculosis or something. Yeah, or I'm, you know what? I lied. He did make it to thirty. He made it. He made a little. He made it to thirty six. Um, but yeah, the Good guy, the guy got his leg amputated. He he had he had all kinds of all kinds of diseases and stuff. The guy was not doing well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he moved to Ethiopia as a gun runner, and he became friends with the people there, and yada yada yada. But the but the point being that. You know, this guy lived a difficult life, not a life of, of swashbuckling romance. Um, right. But by adopting him as a hero and putting him on this pedestal, you know, myopic as I was, I was diminishing this super complex dude uh, into somebody, oh, I need to emulate that. I need to do what he did. Um, and, okay, so sure, maybe you're not a, a, a you know, a half-baked 17-year-old like I was, you know, reading anarchist books, but, I mean, maybe maybe, maybe you're doing that too. Maybe you have people that you put on a pedestal creatively that maybe you wouldn't put on a pedestal if you really understood the complexity of, of their real lives. You know, if you really took the time to, to understand, you know, struggle is not a is not a pass to genius yeah yeah and i mean i think that taking such a as as you say such a myopic view of of our heroes is is really dangerous and really misleading for other reasons like one of the other paradoxes that they talk about in this article is um it's the very last one it's we we love heroes most when they're gone um we totally idolize the heroes that that die young especially um but but we idolize heroes most when they're gone and like this is totally true at least for me of like like all the musicians who have died young like um i remember having a conversation like a long time ago when i was in high school with this this guy about buddy holly and um i i was just really getting into buddy holly at the time was like oh man you know if, if only he were alive today like you know what what great stuff would he what what great stuff would he be making now and and this guy who was uh both older and wiser than me at the time um and and you know probably now also um said you know i i think if he lived longer he would have started making bad music you know we worship him this much because we have so little of him well, it's like, it's like what they say about like you know had 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 Tupac or Biggie lived, like Biggie would probably be on get, guesting on a Justin Bieber song this month, you know. Oh. And like that's like that right? Like we don't like to think about that, but like that's probably true. Yeah. You know, and and here it is again. It's the you know it's the danger of pedestals, right? Not just that you might fall off because you're you know several feet off the ground. And that's kind of the unfortunate thing is that like 
heroes really can't be people. Uh, it's it's really mm. not those <laughs> those two things. You know, you can't you can't have one and the other at the same time. Heroes are necessarily absent of any flaw or or downfall. I really appreciated. There's this. Uh, you know, Stephen King is coming out with a new uh, coming out with a new novel. It's actually, it's a, it's a sequel to The Shining. Yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and so he so he's running around, you know, doing interviews, and they had this, this great profile in the Guardian where he's really sort of open about the difficulties that he had, particularly in the early '70s and the mid '70s when he was trying to kind of get his start. You know, he was a teacher. The guy's working three different jobs. Got very little time left for his own work because he said, I would teach. I would come home tired like I'd been on stage. And then I had to correct papers, which is more of the same. And I kept thinking, two or three more years of this, and I won't be able to write at all. He said they were trying to give me the debating club and the play and stuff like that. And there was no discussion of him quitting because we were barely making ends meet. They were living in crappy apartments. And he says, that, hmm. he says that in those days, he was motivated just because there was this gush of image and story happening in his brain. He said it was like somebody yelled fire in a crowded theater and everybody's trying to crowd through the door at the same time, having to force all of his creative output through the limited time he had available. He had all of these ideas that were just being, it was like the pressure. You know, it's like you open up a bottle of Coke and it all, and you, know, you get the fizz. I mean, that, and that was the fizz. And the dude wrote The Running Man in a week. <sighs> a week! He, he 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 took he took vacation for a week in February and he wrote a book. I mean, oh my god! How his biggest sort of bugaboo with most other writers is uh, is their their relative productivity because he's a guy, of course, that can that can write a book in a week, you know. And so it's yeah. it's frustrating for him to see people that write books every every ten years. Um, he's very open about the difficulties that he has. Like he doesn't. He's careful not to allow you to put him on this pedestal, right? Mm. Um, like he presents himself, and you can see by his example, of course, that he has had a great deal of success, you know, critically uh, to some degree and commercially certainly. And but and if somebody wants to tell me Stephen King isn't a good writer because he writes horror books, I'll fight with you with with my with my Stephen King knife. Um, and I don't I don't own a Stephen King there, knife. I don't know what that is. There are multiple large collections of Stephen King. Right, that's right. Um, I have I have seven collections of all forty seven of his books. Um, I'll just drop one of them on you, and I'll have six more. <laughs> I thought that was really admirable. That he's very open about his struggles with like alcoholism, and he's very open with uh, he's very open about the struggles that he had with his family when they would be stressed out and be concerned about be concerned about the feasibility of this thing he was trying to do. He says down here towards the towards the bottom of the piece that he says he has no wish to shut the door on the past. He says, I've been pretty upfront about my past, and I do have regrets, but I never want to shut the door on it. Mm. And I, I, I get that. and I, I find it admirable that he allows us to see in through that door um, so that, you know, you want to talk about somebody that you can admire, talk, you talk about a guy that writes as much as he's written and done it as well as he has and achieved the level of success that he has and at the same time doesn't allow himself to be made a myth you know yeah. doesn't allow himself to be made sort of a cartoon character of uh, of the uh, well accomplished writer you know i think a big part of what heroes do for us is inspire us to do stuff ourselves so is is that more inspiring to see somebody who's done so much and and is so flawed somebody who says look i'm just like you or or is it more inspiring to have that superhuman 
hero, you know? Because, like, I I remember, like, and, and this is probably unhealthy, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it is, I, I am constantly comparing myself to, you know, um, to talented people who are my same age, and I remember um, uh, when I was 19, Fiona Apple made her first album when she was 19, it was fucking amazing. Um, right. who else? Nas made Ill- Nas made Illmatic when he was 19. And, and, and Rimbaud. Rimbaud, uh, wrote his first book of poetry when he was 19. I, I did not do any of those things when I was 19. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely didn't um, record Illmatic. Yeah, and, and I definitely still, definitely still all those people are, are on pedestals to me. Um, and, and it's this, uh, kind of mixed emotion of, like, simultaneous frustration at at them and at myself uh you know myself for for not being as accomplished as they are and and also admiration and also you know hope that i could accomplish half of the success that they have so like which of those is which of those is actually more likely to make us like do our own stuff I think that's an interesting question. I'm kind of trying to wrap my mind around yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not um, expecting you to be like, "Well, Robin, this is uh, this is why th- this is right." Like, I mean, I do think that you think about Illmatic or you think about I remember I remember a conversation I had a couple years back with somebody about, you know, well, when I'm listening to music, I I don't really I don't really care who who the musician is. Same same with actors. Like, I don't I don't care about their life. Uh, I I really I really don't like you know, um, I, I'm, you know, I, I hope they have, you know, nice, nice lives and stuff, but if they're shitty people, it doesn't really matter to me because all I'm doing is listening to their music. Um, but, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that's, if that's always the best principle to go by because like I have a friend who on principle won't, won't watch any John Wayne movies because, uh, fun fact, John Wayne is apparently phenomenally racist. Um, Turns out, yeah, which which I didn't know uh, before mm-hmm. recently, but pro- probably could have surmised. Maybe maybe we just have to go through this process of like putting somebody on a pedestal and not knowing anything about them, and then uh, kind of breaking that pedestal down when we do find out that they are fundamentally flawed in a certain way, and then kind of deciding after that point if we're still going to respect them or not. Somebody like Bukowski, he's another one of these characters like Rimbaud who lived a, a certain kind of lifestyle, who had a certain set of opinions, and that to imagine that the adoption of the lifestyle or the acceptability of the opinions, either one of those, is somehow a gateway to their artistic achievement is to miss the point entirely. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we've certainly so, talked about that before, like kind of, you know, mistaking the character for the person thing. I don't know. Yeah, I certainly think that anybody who, you know, uh, is is going to, you know, put on a cape and a spandex suit and think that that makes them Superman, like, that's that's not how it works. Um, you know, you can, <laughs> we can go ahead and clear that as an option, um, if only it was that simple. They are still human, and they are still flawed, and that doesn't mean that their work is any less impressive. Um, and maybe we can accept that work or or that product or or that act or whatever on its own terms without being kind of colored by whoever the person is yeah i mean i think i think that that makes the most sense not just because 
it avoids sort of the the lifestyle approximation problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, I got I got that's, that's a good. I gotta write that down. Life, lifestyle the lifestyle approximation, approximation problem. problem. That's pretty. That's pretty good. Um, but not only does that approach that you're talking about avoid that problem, it also allows you to recognize that people that achieve certain levels of greatness, I guess, if you want to use that word, ought to embrace the responsibility that comes with that. And and I hesitate to say responsibility because I, I don't want to imagine that just because I like Jay-Z, now he owes me something. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that just because someone has produced something I admire that they now have a responsibility to somehow steward it in a way that I appreciate. I that's not what I'm getting at. But I I do think that that we need to be careful about. You know, this goes right back to the to to the pedestal thing. I I think that that when people are put in a position where they are being admired because i i think that this this even goes to you know we're talking about we're talking about people that we admire and looking up at the pedestal but this even goes to what if you're the person on the pedestal right sure then if if you if you're the person and you look around and you realize that something you've produced is is producing admiration in others i think in that position that you don't have a responsibility to f- fulfill anybody's expectations about you, but I do think you have a responsibility to be honest about about who you are and how you got where you are. Yeah, and and to be aware also of all these expectations or these or these beliefs about you. Right, you can't pretend like they're not there. You can't be you can't be uh, you know Britney Spears and say I'm not a role model. Right, I, I I think that's the real key is is honesty, and that's part of what I appreciate so much about the about the Stephen King interview is is the openness and the and the willingness to to confront any the problematic parts of his of his past that he thinks have influenced his work and being realistic about them rather than allowing them to be romanticized. Yeah, and I think that. I mean, another another hero who has kind of suffered some problems uh, recently. Kind of, kind of spoke about the whole being on a pedestal thing um, in this this article on the Heroes blog that we're looking at the deal re- the deal we strike with our heroes. Um, they pull a quote from Tiger Woods um, after after his whole scandal, um, which is so so telling to me. Um, he says, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules did not apply. He said, I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with everything I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. And I think that's exactly what being in that position does. It makes you feel entitled because... I mean, quite literally, you are given all of these titles and all of this respect and all of this admiration that you you do begin to feel that maybe you're you're special and uh, you can get away with things that others can't get away with. So, you know, keep keep that in mind when when you start uh, doubting or or casting aspersions on you know the next celebrity downfall is that. Uh, it, I mean, I, I don't want to shake my finger, but, it, you know, in a certain way, we all kind of put them there. We we kind of put them in this position where their downfall is so public and so, you know, maybe maybe even more uh, 
humiliating than would be the case otherwise. Because I I saw you sent me this this piece from uh, from Brain Picker. the the ti- The title is "How to Pack Like Nellie Bly: Pioneering Journalist." Yeah, and I I was I was I read it, and I'm, there's a great graphic here about uh, what to pack to travel the world. Uh, I lo- especially given that I'm in the market for a, in the market for a, a, a tactical hipster at the moment. Right. Um, I I loved the uh, the graphic, but I, what was it that that made this this article jump out of you? Sure. Well, I mean, for one thing, that title is am- and the, <laughs> the whole packing thing is just pretty amazingly belittling of this amazing person. But no, she was a she was a journalist in 1889 when being a woman who was also a journalist was you know pretty much unheard of. Um, yeah, she she was a newspaper reporter who was just amazingly adventurous. She uh, faked insanity to do a, a report about the mistreatment of people in this insane asylum. She, so, like, she was literally locked in this insane asylum for months just for a story. Wow. She, to to demonstrate, to, to write a story about modern slavery in, where was she? In New York. Yeah, in New York, she bought a baby. Uh, <laughs> what? She bought a baby uh, on on basically, you know, the black market and the slave trade. And then she also flew around the world in, I think, I believe it was 79 days, just so she could say it was in under 80 days. Nellie Bly is definitely a hero of mine uh, for for many reasons. And, and it, it just goes to show we tend, we definitely tend to make heroes of the people that we um, empathize in a certain way with or or kind of um, you know, are, are in our same trade or in our same uh, vein of work. Like, <laughs> I, yes, I would love to be, you know, the uh, the globe-trotting lady journalist with my bag packed with ivory soap and tennis blazers, a heroic vision of myself that I have, I guess. And she knew how to pack a bag pretty well, too. They talk about how she had decided for her trip around the world she was going to take a single bag, uh, which, which she packed everything from clothing to writing implements to toilet articles that she might require for her journey so that she could prevent any delays that might arise from the interference or incompetence of porters and customs officials. And she wore a pretty badass Sherlock Holmes hat, too. You, you gotta love the Sherlock Holmes hat. And the Scotch Ulster coat. Is that is that the the official term? Yes, that is, that's the official term. Sounds like a like a whiskey and a black metal band. I don't know. I'm making things up now. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm trying to trying to uh, minimize currently for my future world trekking. Um, yeah, you're you make you're making some 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 trekking. Yeah, I can see why I can see why you're 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 admiring the the, the trek trekkers. I guess that I should no, that's Star Trek people. That's not what I mean. Mm. But I can see why you're admiring people who the, the they who trek those them them who trek de- dem dems who trek. <laughs> yes, <laughs> man. Some days I really wish I had a hat head, Justin. You know? <laughs> do you not have a Do you not have a hat? Head? Not in the slightest. What, is, what now? What does that entail? Having a hat? I head? mean, well, partially it's just because like I've got such short hair and it's so blonde I, I mean i just look bald when i put it on. <laughs> <laughs> okay see i have i have the opposite problem my you know my my hair is is very poofy so when i put a hat on it tends to just kind of rest on top of my hair <laughs> 
I so I, I I sort of feel like I'm like I have a child sort of bouncing on my right. Head. That's that's uh stressful. It's very it's very stressful. I'm always concerned that my you know I had to have a have a friend chase my cowboy hat down the street at one point, which made me feel like I was in a like I was in a uh what do you call uh Jim Jarmusch movie. You know, it was all black and white, and I was drinking black coffee and I had to chase my cowboy hat down the street. It was pretty good. I watched There Will Be Blood for the first time last night. Do yeah yeah how how did you did you enjoy oh the, the the film? <laughs> Is that oh, so good? So did, did you, so did... worth the nearly three hours long that it was. Now here's did you have a milkshake while you watched the film? I sure wish I did. Now I have for the ne- for the next time you watch it, I have a suggestion. Um, I suggest that you and your compatriots all get milkshakes and then just drink each other's when you right. when it comes time. Tape a lot of straws together. <laughs> That's right. And construct an elaborate milkshake maze throughout the house. A, a, a milkshake trough. You might. You a might. Milkshake trough. It's gonna. It's gonna end the episode title. <laughs> Big milk trough. What was? Trough. What was the other one we got? Um. We man. We got. We got. I got. Uh. I got heroes can't be people. I got advanced tactical hipster. Mm-hmm. I should. I should. Uh. You know, take after you and start writing things down. <laughs> you writing things down is is useful for for having things written down. You know, I write things beforehand. I never write things during. I was at a I was at a at an interview for a gig last week, and a lady was real impressed that I was ma- making making notes on cards during the interview. And um, um, you know, I told her at one point I had some questions, and she looked at my very thick and intimidating stack of index cards and i said no no just the first card <laughs> I, I i won't be i won't be uh working you through a, a series of uh, of of late night quizzes i think my fear with that is is the same as like my fear of taking notes during class which which whenever i whenever i tried to do that i would always get so caught up in the taking of notes that i would suddenly realize that i wasn't paying attention to what was going on in class uh and that you know became a problem so i don't know i, I you know, I can't do the multitasking, Justin. I can't do it. I just, can't I just can't do it. Do, hang, hang on, I gotta write that. Can't do multitasking. Okay. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, so this, this, this was this is a good one. This I is think. a good one. Hey, speaking of creative productivity, you know, I saw some I saw some tips on how Hemingway made his burgers the other day. <laughs> if you really want some tips on how to be the real Hemingway, you really got to get get a look at these burger tips. You know, it, 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 you'll be right in the sun all the rises in no there time. There you go. There's a, I think also in brain pickings, there's something about F. Scott Fitzgerald's Thanksgiving turkey recipe. Uh it, was it was it just like was it just like a turkey with a bottle of booze inside? <laughs> it was it was something like that. I've got to go find that. <clears throat> I'll, I'll put that in there so that we all know how to emulate our heroes so that we can become them. Talking with a bottle of booze in the show notes? Right. Yeah. Awesome. I'm excited about that. i got to get in on that. The predecessor of the beer can chicken. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to uh, make some noise about the beer can chicken at Thanksgiving this year. I'll see if I can't uh, <laughs> get get my get my people up here right. uh, in on the beer can the beer can chicken and the booze turkey. That's right, but you know, I mean, they already had for God's sake, they already have a, a thing called wild turkey. Like it, this is what it's made. Oh, for. oh, this is, this oh, is what, this is what it's this is what it's all about. Clearly, you put, you put the booze in the turkey. And then you're writing like F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's what you need to do. 
See, we just we just saw we don't need to do another show. We're done. This, this, we just solved everyone's creativity problems. Everybody, go be Hemingway now. You figured go, it out. Just just go put some booze in your turkey. God, I think I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> I'm gonna go eat, have some turkey. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's uh, let's call this one a night. This was a fun one. This was a fun one. I I will talk to you next week. Okay.